0: We're in John chapter 11 this morning. Hopefully you've turned there by now, but if not, I invite you to get there to John chapter 11. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 953. Uh, in, in this chapter, we're going to see not only the sixth sign that Jesus performed, but also we're going to hear another I am statement, right? We kind of have two of these, these uh, big themes in John's gospel, the signs that Jesus performed to, to prove who he, who, uh, who he is, as the Messiah, the Son of God, and, and then all of these I am statements. And every time we hear Jesus say, I am, we're reminded that that is the name that God gave himself or revealed uh, 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 who he was to Moses back in the Old Testament, I am. It's the quintessential name of God. So Jesus is claiming to be equal to God, one with God. And John makes that same argument over and over and over again in his gospel, um, both this sign and the statement this morning are gonna, are gonna leave no room for any one of us to doubt who Jesus really is and what he came to do. It's going to present us very clearly with this reality of, of who Jesus is. We can choose uh, to deny that or we can choose to believe that, but we cannot choose to say this is not what John claims or Jesus claims, okay? Okay? This morning, we're going to read a true story about Jesus bringing a dead man back to life. And Jesus did this so that he could reveal that he is life itself. Remember how John opens his gospel in in chapter 1, verse 4? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is going to reveal that he is life itself, and death-defeating resurrection power is found in him alone. And if we believe what he says about himself here, then we will find life so full and so complete that not even death can take it from us. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? I want to pray and ask God to open his word to us. I know we just did our prayer time, but before we get into this this particular passage, I want to ask for help. Lord, we love you. We're thankful that your word is... Uh, faithful and enduring, never changing, revealing to us who Jesus Christ is. We pray that your word would lead us to your son by your spirit together as your church. And That we wouldn't just be encouraged, but that we would be changed. We pray this for his glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to know that I've had... Uh, I've, I've, I've had mixed feelings about preaching this sermon. Uh, this is one I've been anticipating uh, quite a bit, um, both with, with a hopeful anticipation and, and sort of this anxious hesitation. Maybe that's why I was clenching my teeth last night as I went to bed. Um, many of you, most of you know uh, that I lost my 14-year-old nephew back in October. Uh, not even six months ago. And many of you have uh, experienced deep loss of your own within the last year, let alone uh, multiple years. We, we can all understand what it means to lose somebody we love, right? But our mission here at, Re, at Redeemer is to, to bring glory to Jesus Christ by helping each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of Of our life. And death is one of those realities that we all know about, but nobody really wants to talk about, right? We don't want to linger there. It's something we accept, but it's not something that we want, right? So here's my dilemma in preaching this text this morning How do I magnify the very real life giving power of the resurrection in Jesus without? diminishing the very real life-altering effects of death for us. Death hurts. It stings. Death takes people we love away from us, and it leaves us to live the rest of this life without them. But death doesn't just take away from us. It also leaves us with these things that we don't want, like sorrow and grief and pain Anxiety, death feels final to us and it leaves us longing for reassurance that it really isn't final. We don't want it to be, right? That's why today's passage is so important because it's not merely this nice sentimental story that leaves us wishing it were true. This is a true story that leaves us with the assurance that we're longing for. Here's the big point, and it's right out of Jesus' own mouth. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, everyone, everyone who believes in him will never die. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, everyone who believes in him will never die. And the question then that we all must answer today, it comes again from Jesus' own mouth. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? so let's dig in. John chapter 11. We're going to go up verses 1 through 16 here at the beginning. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. That comes in chapter 12, but John expects his audience to know about that story already. And it was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. So the sisters went or or sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, The disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. And if if anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I am on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's falling, fallen asleep, he'll get well. Let the man sleep. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought that he was speaking about natural sleep. And so Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him meaning Jesus and not Lazarus. Now, there are three perspectives here on Lazarus's situation that, that we need to note. First, there were Mary and, and Martha, Lazarus's sisters. They loved their brother, they loved Jesus, and they knew how much Jesus loved them and Lazarus. And Lazarus got sick, right? And, and so then they didn't, they didn't want him to die. Just like when our family members get sick, we don't just like, give up, we don't want them to die We do what we can to help them live. And so they sent a message to Jesus because they knew that he could help their brother and they wanted him to come as soon as possible. Lord, get here. Get here. They were trying to avoid death. They were trying to avoid death. And then there were the disciples who were with Jesus when he got the message they knew that Jesus could help Lazarus because they'd seen him heal other sick people, but they didn't want him to go to, to Lazarus because Lazarus lived in, a, in the town of Bethany, which was a couple miles outside of Jerusalem where there's this growing uh, cadre of, of, of Jewish leaders who, who don't like Jesus, and they've already tried to kill him more than once with stones. The disciples were concerned that if Jesus went to Bethany, to keep Lazarus from dying, then Jesus himself would be killed, and their, their, their messianic dreams of being liberated from Rome would be crushed, and so they tried to talk him out of going. Now, at first glance, it seems like in verse 16, Thomas was valiantly declaring his loyalty to Jesus. Well, if he's going to die, let's go too, Right? But it's more, more likely that he was making a sarcastic comment instead. We'll see later in John's gospel that Thomas was prone to pessimism and doubt. The point here is that none of the disciples were excited about Jesus' plan. They were trying to avoid death. And then there was Jesus who, who knew that this was going to be an opportunity for God's work to be, to be displayed through him so that people would believe in him and, and both he and the father would be glorified as a result he wasn't afraid of the jews because he is the light of the world right and when you walk in the light you don't have to fear the darkness when you walk in the darkness you need to fear the light but he's the light that you can run to jesus wasn't afraid It was the religious leaders that were stumbling and not him. In verse 4, he said, This sickness will not end in death. But then he didn't leave until he knew that Lazarus was already dead. Did you catch that? He waited two more days. He wasn't trying to avoid death. He was waiting for it. He was waiting for it. Why would he do that? If he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, then why did he stay two more days in the place where he was before heading to Bethany? In chapter 4, Jesus healed the official's son who was sick without even traveling to the town where the boy was. You remember that? This was for a stranger who came up to him. Surely then, if he does that for a stranger, wouldn't he then also be willing to do that? for someone who he loved so deeply. He didn't even have to go to Bethany. He could have just said the words, Lazarus is fine. And he would have been healed. But he didn't. And even more confusingly, he waited. He waited to go to Bethany until after Lazarus was dead. Now, when we hear that a loved one is near death, what do we do? We rearrange our plans. We, we get to them as fast as we can. If we're not already there and we do everything in our power, then we exhaust all our resources to try to help them. But sometimes it's still out of our control, right? We, we, it's in those moments we, we realize our own limitations. We do all that we can, but nothing that we do seems to work. And so we cry out to God because we know that he can help But have you ever been here? Sometimes it feels like God shows up a little too late, brings the answer a little little late or not at all, like he's waiting in our minds for no reason. The ESV Gospel Transformation Bible puts it this way, the discipline of delay is one of the hardest lessons we must learn as followers of Jesus, especially when it is God who does the delaying. Only grace can enable us to accept God's rich vocabulary of answers to our earnest prayers. Yes, no, not yet, or even yes, but it's going to feel like no. Only grace can enable us to accept God's rich vocabulary of answers to our earnest prayers because we trust that he is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. I will be the first one to admit that when I got the phone call from my dad last October telling me that my nephew had died, the first response that came out of my mouth or in my mind or in my heart was not, this happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. only by God's grace that I've begun to see over these last five and a half months how that statement can actually be true in the midst of such a horrible situation. And I also understand that the hope-filled truth of that statement doesn't dismiss the gut-wrenching pain that I feel from loss. Easter is a month away from today the pinnacle time of the year where we joyfully proclaim the death-defeating resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even as we celebrate this glorious reality with joy in our hearts, there are some of us who will do that also with tears in our eyes. Because death has dealt us a devastating blow through the loss of someone we deeply love, my sister who lost her son in October she expressed this tension to me in this way. She said, I know, I know that Jesus overcoming death is the very reason that I have hope. But it's hard to sing about a grave when I have an actual grave to go visit after church. Loss leaves us waiting for answers to questions we don't even want to ask. It confounds our perception of God's timing and his purpose. But even when the tears blur our vision, we can confidently still remain trusting of God's heart. Why? Verse 5 gives us the answer. Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Even when God's actions don't make sense to us, listen, this is so important, they're always rooted in his love for us. Even when God's actions don't make sense to us, they are always rooted in his love for us. Why did Jesus wait? Because this was more than just about healing Lazarus from sickness. He could have done that from where he was. It was even more than about raising Lazarus from the dead physically. There was something bigger that this event was leading to. In verse 15, he told his disciples, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. Why? So that you may believe. Jesus was setting the stage for God's glory to be revealed through him so that all who believe in him would experience greater resurrection than the one that he was about to perform. So let's keep going. Look at verse 17. We'll go through 27 here. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I love her answer because it's not just believing in a theological concept. He says, do you believe this? And what's her answer? Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Doesn't that sound very, very similar to John's purpose of his gospel? So that you may believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There was a common Jewish belief that when a person died, their soul stayed around for three days hoping to be able to re-enter the body and come back to life. But after three days, then the soul gave up and left. John specifically mentions that Lazarus was dead four days to dispel any aspect of that belief where someone could, could bring that back. Well, it's only been three days, so he found a way to get back to his body. No chance. He was dead, really dead. No chance of coming back to life. And, and then John lets us in on this conversation between Martha and Jesus Mary, while she continued in the custom of remaining seated in mourning for her brother, Martha got up and she went out to meet Jesus as he approached the town of Bethany. Before he even got there, she ran out to meet him. And as she talked to him, we can see her wrestle with this tension of feeling both pain and hope, right? Martha loved Jesus deeply and she knew that Jesus loved her and Mary and Lazarus deeply. And so she also knew though that that Jesus If he had made it in time, if only he had made it in time, he could have healed Lazarus and kept him from dying. But she didn't go out and yell at Jesus. That's not what this is saying here. She wasn't scolding him about being too late. She was expressing her deep sorrow and pain over something that she knew could have been avoided. Could have been avoided if only Jesus had intervened. Have you ever lamented like Martha? Lord, if only you had been here, then this horrible thing would have never happened. Sometimes in our grief, we become convinced that our perspective on our situation is more accurate than Jesus' perspective. But there's hope to be found in his difficult words from verse 15. He doesn't just say, I'm glad I wasn't there. he says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. Why? So that you'll actually believe in me. This is to deepen your faith. This is to make you more confident in who I am, not less. In the midst of her sorrow, Martha did have hope. She hoped she had hoped that God the Father would give Jesus whatever he asked from him, hope that her brother Lazarus would rise again on the resurrection at the last day. Like, like most Jews, uh, she believed in the resurrection to come. But Jesus told her that the resurrection was more than a future event. It was a present reality because he is life itself. And death-defeating resurrection power is found in him alone. And if Martha believed what Jesus said about himself here, then she would find life so full and complete that not even death could take it from her. She would experience a resurrection for herself. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to wait till the end. You're staring it in the face. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Based on the original language, the Greek that was here, we could put it this way in English. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will come back to life after dying. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die forever. This is what Jesus is getting at. Not only was Jesus once again claiming to be God by saying, I am, he was also doubling down on the statement that he made back in chapter 5. Remember what he said there? Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants And what's more, just like he did with the other signs that were coupled with these I am statements that we've read, Jesus was proving here that he was not only able to perform the sign itself, but that he himself was the embodiment to which that sign pointed. Jesus didn't just feed the 5,000, which was more like 15 to 20,000. He didn't just feed them with bread. What did he say? I am the bread. I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. He didn't just uh, open the eyes of the blind man. He is the light of the world by which we truly see. He wasn't just going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. He is. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, those who believe in him, we don't have to wait until the last day to experience his resurrection power. He came into the world so that we may have life and have it in abundance Right now, we saw this two weeks ago when Tim preached on John 10, the Good Shepherd. Eternal life is not just something we hope for in the future. Yes, that's an aspect of it. But we need to understand it's a very present reality for everyone who believes in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus doesn't say that death won't happen. We need to understand that. But here's what he does promise. For those who believe, death will never last. It'll never last. Because those who believe in him have already been spiritually resurrected, and physical death can never bring an end to spiritual life. Even though Martha felt the pain and sorrow of death in that moment, she believed that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, and... Even though Jesus was the resurrection and the life, he also felt the pain and the sorrow of death in that moment. Let's read on. Look at verse 28. Having said this, <clears throat> she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in, in private, the teacher is here and he's, <laughs> excuse me, and he's calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who'd come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? At a Jewish funeral... It was customary for the family of a deceased loved one to hire some professional mourners to come and weep with the family members. This, this probably sounds weird to us, but just because the people were paid to do this, it doesn't mean that they did not genuinely mourn along with the family. If you've lost a loved one, you know what it means to be in shock, right? You don't even know how to let emotions or feelings out. You don't even know how to mourn. Uh, you're, just, you're just kind of there, their purpose was to set the tone to help bring people back out of shock and give them that ability to mourn over the loss of a loved one. I'm not sure why they didn't get up and follow Martha when she came out to meet Jesus. John doesn't explain that, but here he tells us, when Mary got up, they followed her. They got up with her. They assumed she was going to Lazarus's tomb to cry there, and so they went there to cry with her. Mary was distraught when she saw Jesus. She fell at his feet. You know, that, you know that feeling of exhaustion, right? Sorrow overcomes you so much, you can't even hardly stand up. She fell at his feet and, and said the same thing her sister said. Lord, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And like Martha, Mary wasn't scolding Jesus about being too late. She was expressing a deep sorrow and pain over something that she knew could have been avoided if only Jesus had intervened. If only, if only you had been here. The New Living Translation gives us a helpful picture here of what was happening in verse 33. It says, then when Jesus saw her weeping and he saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up Within him, and he was deeply troubled. The original Greek uh, gives us this picture of Jesus snorting with intense displeasure and indignation. Mary was beside herself with grief. The mourners who came with her were wailing loudly, and Jesus was outraged to the point of trembling. But he wasn't angry at Mary. He wasn't angry at Martha and the mourners for being so grief-stricken, even though he was about to, be, uh, to bring Lazarus back to life. He wasn't dismissing them. Jesus' anger burned intensely toward death itself. Death was an enemy that Jesus wanted to destroy. And he was deeply distressed by the evil of it and by the extreme sorrow and pain that it caused to, to the people that he deeply loved. There are only two other places in John's gospel where he mentions that Jesus was deeply troubled in his soul like this. Once in chapter 12, when Jesus predicted his crucifixion, where he was going to die, and once in chapter 13 where he predicted how that would come about when one of his own disciples, Judas, would betray him. You'd be troubled too, wouldn't you? This is the kind of passion that Jesus was feeling here. And he was so burdened with sorrow and pain and righteous anger that he burst into tears. Jesus wept, maybe the shortest verse in all of Scripture, but it, in its context here, it makes it one of the most profound examples of God's compassion and his empathy toward human suffering in all of Scripture. Don't just gloss over it because it's two words long. When you're beside yourself in grief and anguish uh, of terrible loss, you need to know that Jesus does not callously dismiss your pain or ridicule you for being emotionally weak. Do you know that as believers, we should never apologize about crying? Can I just lovingly tell you to stop it? We need to let it out, it's a gift. We don't need to apologize. Why? Because the world says we need to be strong. And and crying is a form of weakness. Yeah, it is. Jesus meets us in our weakness. He meets us in our weakness. He doesn't dismiss your pain. He doesn't ridicule you for being weak. No. What does it say here? Jesus weeps with you. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Some who saw Jesus weeping understood it as an expression of his deep love for Lazarus. Oh, see how he loved him. Others remain skeptical. If he loved Lazarus so much, why didn't he get there sooner? Why didn't he just keep Lazarus from dying, right? Surely the one who'd opened the blind man's eyes could have healed Lazarus, right? Nobody's ever opened a blind man's eyes before. He's already healed a sick person. Why didn't he do that? Jesus had come, though, to do more than prevent death. Hear this. He had come to do more than prevent death. He came to destroy it. Look at verse 38. We'll go through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unwrap him and let him go. Now Jesus, or notice here how John does not call Lazarus by his name as he's describing this story, this part of the story. Instead, what does he call him? The dead man. Remember how he talked to, to the man, about the man who used to be blind? He calls Lazarus a dead man because that's what he was. John even goes so far as to include Martha's graphic description of a stench that Lazar, at Lazarus' grave because of how long he'd already been dead. Don't open that. There's a stench. All this is purposeful language that John uses to emphasize the reality that Lazarus was actually dead so that John can emphasize the glory and power of God through what happened next. Jesus reminded Martha that if she believed, she would see the glory of God. Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you this? And then he prayed to God the Father, not so that the Father would hear him, but so that the crowd would hear him and see that the Father has already answered his prayer He prayed out loud so that the crowd would believe that the Father had sent him. Just like he told the disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. He prayed out loud to the Father so that the people standing there would also believe. That they would believe that the Father had sent him. And that that by believing, as John says in chapter 20. They might have life in his name. And as they witnessed Lazarus' physical resurrection, Jesus wanted them to experience a spiritual resurrection. And then he shouted those glorious words. But we need to understand this, okay? There was no gentleness here. Jesus was trembling a moment ago, weeping with righteous anger. There's no gentleness here in his voice. He's not, he's not like some parent beckoning their child, come here come on out. Right? Maybe you've, maybe you've seen or heard that portrayed that way. This is not what's happening. In the original language, it conveys, conveys that, that Jesus screamed with an intensity that would have, would have made the weeping and the wailing and all of the noise of all the mourners sound like nothing in comparison. And that's the point He was so enraged at the evil of death that he wasn't going to leave any room for anybody to doubt the power of God. It's as if all at once he was commanding death to die and Lazarus to live and so he screamed, Lazarus! Come out! Jesus Christ, the word of God, who was with God in the beginning, who is God, the one who spoke everything into existence by the word of his mouth, just shouted into the mouth, the dead mouth of a dark cave, to a dead man and told him to get up and come out. And that dead man walked out. Why? Because he wasn't dead anymore. The one who is the resurrection and the life just proved it to everyone standing there. But Jesus knew that bringing Lazarus back to life would cost him his own. Look at verse 45, we'll finish out the chapter here. Therefore many of the Jews came to Mary and and saw what he did. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. They were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing these signs? If we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him, and the Romans are going to come take our place and our nation away from us. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Remember how they whispered before? What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. The tension between Jesus and the religious leaders had reached a boiling point. They hated that people were believing in Jesus and following him, and they hated Jesus for that. They wanted power and authority all for themselves, but that but they thought that Jesus was going to ruin all of that by creating an uprising. People would follow him and charge into Rome, and he, and, and he would liberate them, But, but or, or at least that's what they would think. But these Pharisees and the religious leaders thought, this is just going to be another one of those uprisings. Rome's going to quell it, and we're going to lose all our advantage. Caiaphas interjected a solution to their problem. said, hold on, the whole nation of Israel didn't have to perish under Rome. If they could place all the blame on one man. And Caiaphas just so happened to know who they should place the blame on. And so from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. But while Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die so that they could be relieved of the political pressure from Rome, John makes it clear that Caiaphas spoke more truth than even he realized John uses the words of Caiaphas to point to the reality that Jesus would die, but not to relieve political troubles. He would die to take away the sins of all who believe in him, whether they be the Jews or the Gentiles. Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, not because he was afraid of them. Well, we've seen this. His hour had not yet come. Nobody takes his life, he told us. He lays it down on his own. And he does so according to the Father's timing and plan. Jesus would not give himself over to this plotting and scheming of the Jews until the Passover, but we're told here that it's drawing near. We've covered a lot of ground in these first 11 chapters of John, and we slow way down to the last week of Jesus' life from here on out. It would be during the Passover festival that one of his own disciples, Judas, would betray him. He'd be arrested and handed over to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders would coerce Pilate into having Jesus crucified. He would die on a cross between two thieves and then like Lazarus, Jesus would be put in a tomb and a stone would be rolled over the opening. Jesus could have avoided his own death by, going, by not going to visit Lazarus. But Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved him. He loved Lazarus enough to let, him, uh, 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 to, to let him die so that the glory of God could be revealed through Lazarus' resurrection. But because Jesus loved Lazarus so much, he was willing to lay down his own life for his friend. And because he hated death so much, Jesus was willing to die in order to destroy it. You see, death is necessary for resurrection to take place. There is no resurrection without death. This is why Jesus came, not just to Bethany, but into the world. He came to die so that the glory of God would be revealed through his resurrection and lead those who were spiritually dead to look upon him and believe and find resurrection life in Jesus Christ. You see, it wasn't enough for Jesus to just raise Lazarus from the grave because Lazarus would eventually die again. Just an aside, that's, that's got to be like a bummer for Lazarus, right? I mean, you're, you died once and Jesus brought you back, but then you have to go back to the grave. Aren't you so glad that you're still in the hands of, of the living God, if, if and or when that happens? Death would win again, but death didn't win. Death did not win win against the one who is the resurrection and the life. Death did not rule over the great I am. No, on the third day, death itself died and Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb never to die again. Do you notice nobody stood at his grave and told him to come out? Because he is the resurrection and the life. And now the one who believes in Christ will live even if he or she dies. Everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. Here's the question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If so, your life is hidden with Christ in God. We sang about that this morning. It's from Colossians 3. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Death may take your physical body, yes, but it will never take your life. It will never take your life. And if you don't know Christ this morning in this way, then hear his words once more. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Listen, Jesus brought Lazarus out of the tomb, and he can bring you out of the tomb too. Jesus set Lazarus free from the bondage of death, and he can set you free from the bondage of death. Listen to him call. He doesn't just call Lazarus by name, he calls each one of us by name. Come out. Come out. Don't remain in death. Believe in Jesus and you'll have resurrection life in him, starting right now and carrying on into forever. There's probably not a single person in here who has not lost a loved one at some point in your life to death. And if, and if you've, you've gotten by this far, this long without that, it's coming. It's inevitable for all of us. It's always lost to us because we've only ever experienced death secondhand. You know that? Our loved ones die and what? We stay. We remain. We experience it secondhand. But as believers, we know that Christ has experienced death firsthand on our behalf. He bore the pain. He bore the shame. He bore the punishment that we deserved because of our sin. He died in our place, but then he rose, listen, to give us firsthand experience at eternal life. And because of that, we can grieve. We can still grieve. We can grieve as those who have hope when we lose a loved one. And although we should never seek death as the answer to our pain and suffering, we also no longer need to fear it or to try to avoid it because Jesus is the answer to death. And therefore, Jesus is the answer to our suffering and our pain. And when we do experience death firsthand... It won't be loss. It won't be loss. Because we will gain what we have hoped for, what we have longed for, what Christ over and over again reassures us of. Freedom from death once and for all as we eternally dwell in the safety and presence of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in him will never die. Do you believe this? If we minimize the pain and the loss that comes with death, then we risk minimizing what happened at the cross. But if we minimize the reality of hope and life for every believer, then we also risk minimizing what happened at the tomb three days later. So as believers, we should grieve when our loved ones die. Why? Because it hurts. Oh, it hurts. It's a pain like no other. Because we feel the loss. But as believers, let's grieve unapologetically with a hope that appoints a hopeless world to the one who is the resurrection and the life. Why? So that they might believe in him and never die forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that he has triumphed over sin and death and the grave. We thank you for the promise of eternal life that we find in his gospel. Lord, it's for your glory that, that his resurrection destroyed the power of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all who believe. Father, we rest in you, in the peace that we now have with you through Christ, and we trust in the promise that because he lives, we will also live. And Though we grieve and loss now, we do so in the glorious hope that all who trust in you will gain life forever. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, who gives us the victory. Amen.